Welcome to The Shed Wireless, a podcast from the Australian Men's Shed Association, shoulder to shoulder, virtually. Hello and welcome to Series 2, Episode 6 of The Shed Wireless, the Men's Shed Week episode. Coming up, everything you ever wanted to know, and perhaps a few things you didn't, about how to get DGR status for your shed. We meet the new chair of the Parliamentary Friends of Men's Sheds. Rudeness, lateness, littering. What constitutes disrespect? We wrestle with respect in the modern world. And Rip has a few thoughts on that idea as well. We're going to ask the doc, in fact two of them, all the hard questions about erectile dysfunction. Oh yeah, that's a conversation I never thought I would have. And that is just part of what is dead ahead here on this episode of The Shed Wireless. Hello, I'm Aaron Carney, and David Helmers will be joining us for our in-depth DGR discussions in this episode. So we are joined by the chairman of the Australian Men's Shed Association, Paul Sladden. Hello, sir. Hello, Aaron. How are you today? I'm great. Happy Men's Shed Week with hundreds of Victorian men's sheds still in lockdown, although maybe not for much longer. You guys have had some really good news and the COVID-19 crisis calming and going and surging and waning. National Men's Shed Week is looking a little different this year. Yes, very different. As you know, 2020 has all been about shoulder to shoulder online or virtually. So uh, Men's Shed Week, uh, especially in Victoria this year, is going to look a little different. But uh, certainly those sheds in the other states and territories, uh, they will be celebrating uh, Men's Shed Week in uh, in a variety of ways. But here in Victoria, yes, we are unfortunately still locked down. Things are on the improve. Hopefully within a couple of weeks, we may be able to get back to some sort of COVID normal, as they say. There's that old saying that necessity is the mother of invention. And I know that quite a few shedders across the country. Some of them are proud tech nerds and uh, sometimes I think the entire sheds run off the back of the one or two tech nerds that are getting around in each shed. But I know it's been a source of some pride to ignore that bloody new fangled tech stuff for a lot of men. It has been necessary to embrace the change. What are you hearing from shedders about uh, how they've had to go online in 2020? You're quite right there, Um People have been uh, forced to uh, connect in other ways, and certainly technology does assist us with that. And, you know, I I really do think that sometimes we underestimate the older generation um, in terms of their uh, technological um, ability. And um, I'm aware that many, uh, many sheds uh, and shedders uh, do listen to our mm. uh, podcast. So that's been one of the innovations that uh, AMSA has done. But they also using Zoom and Skype uh, and online platforms to connect with their members as well uh, in this period of, um, of lockdown. So that technology, I, I think, really is going to change the way uh, that we meet in the future as well. So I, I think the, uh, the increased use of technology will certainly continue continue way beyond um, COVID. Yeah, I 
have mentioned here previously that I was lucky enough to go to a shed birthday that was virtual. And I reckon there was probably 50 shedders and friends on that conversation. The AMSA board has met virtually on at least two or three occasions this year as well. I've got a theory that Whereas before you would meet face-to-face as the baseline and then if something was really urgent or important, you'd go online, I think that might get flipped. The auto will be to go online and if it's really, really important, you'll make the effort to go face-to-face. What do you reckon? Yeah, no, no, I I definitely uh, agree with you there, Aaron. Look, it was the same when mobile phones came along. And uh, if you see now the the number of shedders that uh, do have a mobile phone and communication via text, uh, broadcasting messages via text to uh, shed members, that take-up has been uh, extraordinary. And I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm confident that the use of uh, online um, platforms will increase in terms of that communication with uh, sheds and their members. Anything else that will mark Men's Shed Week this year? Yeah, a couple of uh, new initiatives. Uh, the first one, well, it's not a new initiative, but uh, as you into that in your introduction. We're very, very pleased that um, the federal government has uh, passed legislation uh, for deductible gift recipient, um, DGR, for men's sheds and community sheds, uh, which will certainly uh, be a a huge boon uh, for our sheds to access uh, philanthropic uh, funding. So um, there's a number of webinars uh, taking place uh, this week to uh, to assist uh, sheds to get on board with the DGR. We've got a fantastic community services announcement uh, about to be released on um, on television, voiced by Michael Caton, of course, from the the castle and uh, Last Taxi to um, Darwin, and many many other movies and television shows such as uh, Sullivan's, of course. Who could forget Uncle Harry? So Michael's done the voiceover for that, and we've got a very exciting uh, jingle, but we can't uh, reveal too much about that at the moment. Stand by for more on that one. <laughs> but yeah, certainly the uh, the community service announcement, when people see that, it, it, it's a brilliant ad uh, that will be aired on television over the next couple of weeks, yeah. I have been involved in a small way in the CSA and I played it on my computer the other day and three hours later, my five-year-old was still singing the jingle and that's a sign of a good jingle. Uh, It is. (laughs) When you played it once and it's stuck in someone's head, that's a good sign. Earworm. That could be a good thing. could be a bad thing. When you first hear a song early in the morning and... You can't get it out of your head for the rest of the day. Well, if that's going to happen, it might as well be the Men's Shed song. That's all I'm saying. Exactly. (laughs) Now, listen, you just referred to something as well that I did want to flag ahead of this conversation. This episode will feel slightly different because we have really tried to dig deep on the DGR and give you some really valuable information. I feel like it's the sort of thing that you will want to share, but there are one or two references in the conversation that you will hear that talk about timelines that are inaccurate because we had to pre-record that because, as you will hear, we get access to some very high-level individuals within the tax office and the ACNC. So the timelines are a little bit out of order. They might refer to something that's happening in a couple of days, but, in fact, that was a week ago, for example. But 
All you need to know is the information that they share is spot on broadly, just not time stamped. And if you keep an eye on the mail outs and you visit the men's shed online, you'll be across everything in real time so that we know problems at all with all of that. We'll talk to you at the end of the show, Paul, but for now, let's get on with it. Staying strong. Staying sharp staying healthy with the shared wireless you hear the word thrown around all the time i wish you'd show some respect respect your elders respect has to be earned but what is respect and what for that matter is disrespect is it rudeness is it lateness is it just being agreeable all the time and not rocking the boat Let's explore this with somebody I have only the greatest respect for, AMSA Men's Health Project Officer Stuart Torrance. Hello, sir. Aaron, how are you? Yeah, good, thank you. What do you make of the whole idea of respect? Because we give it a hell of a lot of attention, don't we? We do. We do. And I, I, I think it's something that stemmed from, I don't know, days gone by. I see less and less of it. The fact I see rubbish on the street means people aren't respecting our environment. Or I hear on the news of, uh, of families being torn apart by some um, twat with his uh, uh, me, me, me attitude, um, not disrespecting his family, um, hurting his wife, hurting his kids. You know, respect, I, I think, has been forgotten in, in a certain aspect. And one of the things I, I love when I... I do a presentation is I always acknowledge, uh, give an acknowledgement of, of country and um, because they are articulating their respect for their elders, both past and present. And, and in my um, uh, presentation, I actually thank them for that reminder and then go on to acknowledge my own elders, past and present. And I've, I've had, um, you know, Aboriginal um, elders and... Um, the, the, the community members come up and say that's the loveliest way someone has framed the acknowledgement of country um, and they appreciate the fact that I've been inspired by their acknowledgement of their elders. Um, so respect, I, I think, is hugely important but is um, uh, unfortunately slipping into a bygone era. See, the through line for everything that you've said there from my point of view is that actually respect is rooted in the idea that there is more going on than just me, right? So if I throw my rubbish out the window, that just says, well, I don't want the rubbish in my car, but in fact, there's more going on than me. If I talk rudely about an elder or whatever else, then that positions me as the only point of interest and concern that the life that that person has lived, the wisdom that's contained therein, uh, I have not cared about that. So I think that there is a connection between this, the cult of the individual, you know, every man for himself, I'm always the front of the line, I've got to be number one. That and the idea of the death of respect hold hands, in my opinion. You got a thought on that? I look at the the movies that that we watch, the the music that we listen to. You can see the erosion of that uh, sense of um, community uh, and the the focus on the me generation, uh, the I I I, 
I've got an iPad, an iPhone, uh, um, and it's all about me. And, and I think that's where we've lost. I, I idolise my father. I respect him uh, to the utmost. And, and in doing that, I see myself growing into the same person as he is because I want to be like that. I want to be respected. And then I find out I'm not respected by others that don't see me as I see my father. They, they see me as, as someone pushing an ideal or uh, I have my own way of, of uh, thinking about uh, the environment, of, uh, about people, about community, and they don't see the sense of importance that I do uh, and therefore the respect isn't passed on. I just want to play devil's advocate for a moment because I'm imagining if it was a 22-year-old was in this conversation as well, they might say, oh, don't talk to me about intergenerational respect. What did you all do for climate change? Or, you know, uh, you all voted for franking credits and we can't even get a full-time job, whatever the thing is, right? I'm just just playing devil's advocate saying... I guess yeah. what I'm getting at is, is it too easy to make it a generational thing? Because, you know, once upon a time, people thought the Beatles were the devil. And you can, there's a, some famous quote from Socrates who uh, he said, oh, you know, kids today have got no respect. And he said that 2,000 years ago. So is it more than generational? Ooh. I don't normally push back on you. I hadn't actually <laughs> researched Socrates. Like, I now respect you, Aaron, so much more because you've done so much more research than I have on this topic. While you're talking, I'm going to find the actual quote. Well, you, you, might, you might be right. Maybe th- this is that intergenerational change that we continuously see. As you, as you were talking about the Beatles, um, as rock and roll came in, it was um, seen as the the, the beastie thing, but now I, I look at the heavy metal music and I go, oh, you know, I'm starting to feel the same way. The next generation will probably have a fight with the music of that generation and, and so on. Mm. But I don't think that's about respect. I, th- I think that's just about the the cultural aspects of, of life changing uh, as we go. The respect comes from when I step back and I go, my sons appreciate a different music to myself. I don't particularly like that music, but I must give them the wings to try different things. And I've seen my, my sons sort of come full circle, and now they're in their early 20s and, um, and early 30s. They seem to, their music tastes have mellowed quite considerably. And I've watched this transition as they've gone from this will really shake mum and dad up. I, I used to come home with different haircuts every week and different hair colours. And I think what I was trying to get at was to show mum and dad that I was an individual. It wasn't that I disrespected them and I know they would have liked me to be squeaky clean and, uh, and you know, wear a suit and tie and all the other bits and pieces, but I was a bit of a rebel. So I would show that outwardly. It wasn't a matter of disrespecting my parents it was about, you know, pronouncing my individuality. So maybe, you know, I've now done a backflip on what I've just said earlier, and maybe that's not disrespect. Now, this is why we have these discussions, Mm. because I actually think that we've arrived at the same point from completely opposite directions in the sense that, to me, uh, 
respect is actually about appreciating that there are perspectives other than your own and you don't have to agree with them. You don't have to agree with them. You can think that heavy metal sucks, right? You don't have to agree with it, but you do have to appreciate that it might have meaning for someone else. And, okay, so that's Mm. the heavy metal example. Equally, when there's an older gentleman, whatever, feeding the pigeons and you don't think the pigeons should be fed or whatever the thing is, right, that there is a way to disagree with somebody, to have a different perspective, to or just not understand why he would get joy from feeding pigeons or listening to heavy metal music, but still mm. lacing your behaviour with respect if I only care about me. That's where disrespect leaks into everything because it says your pigeons, his heavy metal, uh, that woman's dress sense, whatever it is. If I only care about my opinion, that's where it leaks into everything. Can I share the Socrates quote with you? Please do. 2,000 years ago plus, give or take. Children, they have bad manners, contempt for authority. They show disrespect for elders and they chatter in the place of exercise. (laughs) They no longer rise when elders enter the room. They contradict their parents and they tyrannise their teachers. Children are now tyrants. So apparently the idea that the next generation are bums is not a new one. (laughs) So Socrates was only only 10 years ago. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. He goes on to say that he thinks the Beatles are the devil. Uh, I, I think I think my uh, my my thought has now changed. So, in regards to the heavy, heavy metal uh, an analogy, <laughs> the disrespect is playing my music so somebody else who doesn't like it can do nothing else but listen to it. Voila! The respect is I will love my music, but I'll put my headphones on to listen to it so as I don't disturb you. Could not agree more. And. There is no ultimate answer, but I do think that we can all arrive at a little bit of enlightenment just by thinking about it. And I think that respect mm. easily said and not easily understood. And for those of us who value community, I think that is at the heart of it. But it's a lot easier to preach it than it is to practice it sometimes. Absolutely. Thank you so much, mate. Great to catch up as always. Always good to talk to you, Aaron. Take care. AMSA Men's Health Project Officer, Stuart Torrance. You're listening to The Shed Wireless. As we mentioned, we have a bit of a change for this episode of The Shed Wireless. Rather than a shed in the spotlight feature, as we normally have, we're in fact putting all sheds in the spotlight this episode. As you probably know by now, some historic changes to sheds and shedding have just become official, enshrined in legislation on the floor of Parliament. From October 1, 2020, community sheds can apply for the deductible gift recipient endorsement, known universally as the DGR. But to do so, you're going to need to meet a number of eligibility criteria. AMSA has been working on this themselves for a very long time and really hand in glove with the Australian Taxation Office and the Australian Charities and Not-for-Profits Commission for some time now. And all three organisations 
are really committed to making the process of getting endorsement for your shed as logical and as accessible and as non-bureaucratic as possible. That's going to happen in a whole range of ways, some of which you will probably hear shortly, but it's going to start right here, right now, by giving you access to the people who have worked so closely on the challenge of DGR for Sheds. And so we are very fortunate to be joined on the Shed Wireless by Australian Taxation Office Assistant Commissioner Jennifer Moltisanti. Welcome. Australian Charities and Not-for-Profit Commission Assistant Commissioner Anna Longley and Australian Men's Shed Association Executive Officer David Helmers is out of the host chair and into the whatever chair this is. Hello, David. I'm actually in my shed chair today, mate. As am I. And it's so hot in here today that if you hear some heavy breathing and a thump, just continue on yourselves, okay? Because it's pretty damn warm in my shed. And welcome, Jennifer and Anna, and thanks for taking the time to join us today on the program. Oh, thanks, David. It's a real pleasure. I want to understand the role of each of your organisations in this process. But, David, first of all, let's zoom right out, if you can even remember the answer to this question, given you've been involved for so long. Why should sheds and shedders care about the DGR? Why does this matter? Look, there's a whole range of reasons, and I won't go into all the detail, but in a basic overview of it, the, it allows the sheds to attract more donations financially, directly, uh, by sheds being eligible for DGR. They can give a receipt for, you know, tax-deductible receipt for donations over $2.00. And more importantly, I, su- I suppose it opens a whole range of future opportunities for sheds in applying for grants. There is a lot of corporate benevolent grants out there and that require that the applicant must have DGR status to be eligible for that. So they're the two key things. But just reflecting on this and where it goes back, I remember back in the old days, and I'm going right back to 2009 at the Hobart Men's Shed Conference, one of the sheds raised this issue and said, why can't we have a special category for men's sheds and DGR? And I explained to him the whole process of that would mean change of legislation, change in the taxation laws. At that stage, we're only a group of about 200 men's sheds. It's not going to happen. And 11 years later, with uh, 1,100 men sheds, here we are, and the that went through Parliament recently is now being passed into law, and men sheds are eligible for their own category of DGR. So it's a very significant occasion. Why did that change need to happen? Why are we as sheds any different to any other tax-deductible community group? Look, I think our two guests are probably the best to explain that, but with the categories of DGR, men's sheds could morph into health promotion charity or other organisations, but there wasn't a perfect fit for it. So by creating this specific category for men's sheds, there is the perfect fit now. Excellent. Well, let's go to our guests and I'll come to you first, Jennifer. The Australian Taxation Office, what role will you be playing in sheds getting DGR endorsement? 
Oh, thanks, Erin. Um, so the ATO is the National Regulator for Tax and Superannuation, and our role is really to assess entities seeking access to Commonwealth tax exemptions and concessions, such as charities that are going to be seeking DGR endorsement, like the community sheds. Now, when we think about DGRs, um, DGRs are actually endorsed under one of many categories that are set out in our Income Tax Assessment Act 1997, and some Sometimes the DGR category can be specifically listed as well. So for community sheds, a shed must be endorsed by the ATO as a DGR to receive tax deductible gifts. And um, and, I'll, and I'll explain that in, in, in a few minutes, but I think um, you might want to pass on to Anna to just explain her role um, in the actual system. Yes, indeed. And Anna, uh, before that, how do I put this discreetly? I think we all know what the tax office is, but I'm not sure that necessarily every single person listening knows what the Australian Charities and Not-for-Profits Commission is. So what is your organisation more broadly and what is it in this context? Thank you very much for that, Aaron. Well, compared to the ATO, we are definitely the new kids on the block. Uh, We commenced uh, at the end of 2012, so we have been around uh, for quite a significantly shorter time than the ATO. Our role is to regulate charities. Even though our name does say that we look after not-for-profits, our our primary focus actually is only on charities at the moment. In relation to sheds, We do already have a number of community sheds that are on our charity register and the charity register is the register of all of the charities, as the name suggests, uh, that operate within Australia. Uh, Those do get charity tax concessions and this is why we're linked through to the ATO as well in the work that we do. The sheds that we do have already on our register, we have a number of different subtypes and they're the types of sheds um, and, and what they're focused on. And earlier, David referred to health promotion charities and public benevolent institutions. They are two types of charities and they are they do have very specific requirements. And uh, I would like to reiterate the point David made that for a lot of sheds, they did not actually fall within either of those two categories, which is why it's so important that we've now got this new category of DGR eligibility. um, And a requirement of that is that you are a charity. Because both of you are, to a greater or lesser extent, involved in making sure that charities are genuine charities and not-for-profits are not-for-profits, so that I just can't sit around and create Aaron's Bonza Beer Club and head down to Bunnings and give everybody a tax discount if they give me their money. That's essentially what you do, right? So, so from a not-for-profit perspective, Aaron, um, so Anna mentioned that, um, you know, uh, the ACNC actually looks after the registration of charities. So the ATO looks after the not-for-profits and there are three categories of not-for-profits. Obviously, the charities which are registered with the ACNC, but any tax concessions are um, endorsed by the ATO. Um, we also then have um, a second category of not-for-profits and this is the self-assessed tax exempt and by far they make 
make up most of the not-for-profits in Australia, so about 70% of the population. And then you've got a, a small portion of the not-for-profit population that are taxable not-for-profits. So there are some not-for-profits that do pay um, a small amount of income tax, but in, in the main, most um, you know, not-for-profits are either self-assessed tax exempt or charities. Good important to understand that all right let's strip it right back and go right to the beginning i'm listening to this i'm a shed in for argument's sake uh, rural or regional victoria and we have terrible car parking facilities every time there's a decent amount of rain our shed car park bogs badly and we need to put down a parking area and want to fundraise for it how do I get DGR status that will allow me to run a fundraising campaign? Jennifer, should we start from the tax perspective? Yeah, I think that might be a really good um, thing to do. So so the first thing um, to understand is what a DGR actually is. And there are certain um, you know things that um, anyone thinking about obtaining DGR endorsement needs to think about. So a DGR is an organisation that can receive gifts that are tax deductible for donors and donors gifting $2 or more, as David mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, may be able to claim an income tax deduction. And access to DGR status may in turn encourage, you know, philanthropy and support for community sheds. So that's why, um, you know, we have this. Now, to be eligible as a community shed, you actually need to meet certain criteria and there's about six criteria that I draw attention to. One of them is that you need to be a registered charity with the ACNC and Anna will go through the key points there so I won't go on that. But the other five that DGRs need to think about is that one, they have to have an active ABN. So they have to be in the system. They have to be established and operate in Australia, so you can't be operating overseas. Uh, You have to meet the DGR requirements. Now, that is really important. So there are many different categories of DGRs within the Income Tax Assessment Act, and each of these categories have their own specific requirements. And so as a community shed, you need to meet the community shared requirements, which we will go through. Um, And you also have to have membership that is open. Uh, Now that can mean, that can be also that it is limited only to an individual's gender. So you can have a men's shed or a women's shed, or it um, can be limited to indigenous status or it can be both. So um, you need to have that sort of open um, membership. And another um, aspect of having DGR endorsement is that you need to prepare and submit your governing documents. And this is really important. And this needs to include for DGR endorsement, your winding up and revocation clauses. So what happens to the assets in the event that the shed actually, you know, ceases to exist, for example, where the assets will actually go. But um, I might hand over to Anna to perhaps go through the the charity um, points. Yes, that's probably the first item for action, is it, Anna? And if so, what does that look like for a shed? Yes, so we do have a number of criteria that need to be met as well if community sheds wish to register as a charity in order to obtain DGR registration. Luckily, a couple of those that Jennifer has mentioned overlap. So one of those requirements is that there is an ABN, so an Australian business number, that is an overlapping requirement for both. 
The other thing is that a community shed must be a not-for-profit entity uh, and have governing documents that set that out very clearly. They can only have charitable purposes. And so that must be a purpose that does fit within the definitions of charitable purposes within the Charities Act. They have to be run for the public benefit. Uh, and by that, I mean there can't be any private benefit out of running those community sheds. It must be an open benefit for the public. And as Jennifer said, there can be specific parts of the, of the public that are particularly benefited. They can't have a disqualifying purpose. And so the Charities Act sets out a couple of purposes that are disqualifying for sheds and they, they can't sit within those. One of those might be um, political advocacy, for instance. They cannot be involved in that. They also can't be an individual, a political party or a government agency. And I don't think we're going to be in danger of any of those in relation to community sheds. David, given what you know about the structure of sheds and the operation of sheds, which of these points that have been raised so far do you think the average shed is well positioned to tackle and which do you think loom as a challenge? Look, I think there's some of the challenges will be um, you know, in, in their changing their governing documents. Uh, there is a process to that and they do have to get the wording right for that but just um in the conversation that's been ha been had here maybe um uh, anna might want to define a bit more clearly what not-for-profit actually means we get quite a lot over the years i've had this number this question a lot of times as members of sheds will say oh, our sheds are not a not-for-profit because they posted a profit for ten thousand dollars last year um, it does not mean that they do not can, can make a profit. It just means, and correct me if I'm wrong, that they cannot disperse those profits to any other organisation or individuals. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. So a not-for-profit organisation is one that returns the profits back into the organisation and uses them, in this case, because we're talking about charities, they must be used for a charitable purpose. So they do, they must be furthering the purpose of that shed that's been deemed to be charitable. There are a couple of clauses in there that are important in terms of both DGR status as well as charity status. And that clause is one within the governing documents that says there cannot be any distribution of these funds to members or any other uh, organisation other than a like charity upon the winding up of that charity. So most people think that because you're not you're a not-for-profit that you can't um, run a profitable business. Of course you can. Most of our larger not-for-profits actually are, are really, you know, well-organised um, organisations that run considerable, um, you know, profits. That's the nature of the work that they do. The issue is what Anna has sort of really, um, you know, outlined that, you know, they just cannot distribute um, the profit 
access uh, to, um, you know, um, their members. It's got to go back into the organisation. So the additional five grand is going on the car park, not me and the lads going out for Christmas lunch. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. <laughs> pretty, look, pretty much. Like to bring it down to, you know, that sort of, you know, matter of fact, absolutely. That's exactly right. David, just before we move on, going back to your passing reference to governing documents, again, I know we've got thousands of sheds and each would have slightly different governing documents, but where do you think the key adjustments will likely happen based on your read of what exists now in governing documents and what will need to exist for DGR status? Yeah, and as was referred to before, it will be based around that statement of purpose and you know, what they their uh, intentions are as a shed, you know, primarily you know, prevention of social isolation you know, and the, and the health aspect of a men's shed. And as Jennifer and Anna both referred to, those winding up clauses. Now, I know, understand a lot of sheds do already have that in place in their constitutions and well and great, they will, you know, go through the, the process with ease. But uh, a lot of the sheds out there are just using the standard model rules, as we call them, where those clauses will have to be um, changed um, you know, through a, a process of a special general meeting of the members so they can qualify for DGR if they do so, you know, want to pursue that. So then there's been, you know, a lot of work there. We've previewed the documentation. There's some guidance for how the sheds can go about that and what they need to do. We'll talk about that at the end, what role of support AMSA can play in this process. But let's return to the process. Uh, having understood what we have from Anna, Jennifer, can we come back to what the ATO's community DGR requirements are? Can you walk us through those? I mentioned earlier that, you you know, you, ha you needed to have all those points. And so there was one um, category there that said that you needed to meet the DGR category requirements. And so really, when you think about this, um, the community shed category um, description uh, means that the shed needs to be a public institution whose dominant purposes are advancing mental health and preventing or relieving social isolation. So that's really, really important. Um, so principally, they need to advance these purposes through providing a physical location and uh, supports individuals to work on projects or undertakes other activities in the company of others. So there's got to be a physical location that allows people to actually work um, together um, in the company of others to work on projects. And that third element that I'd already mentioned, that the membership needs to be open or limited to an individual's gender or Indigenous status or both. So but they are the main categories of um, the DGR, uh, you know, criteria that need to be met for the community sheds. Okay. What I'd like to move to now is a timeline for the process, if possible. And given that getting the status from the ACNC appears to be one of the first steps, Anna, we'll come to you. If my shed decides we want to go after this and we want to get registered with you, what do we do? The first thing that a shed needs to do, as we've already referenced, is review its governing documents. It will also need to work out whether it complies with the five governance standards that are in the Australian Charities and Not-for-Profits Commission Act uh, and the regulation. 
So we do have governance standards set out in there that they really must adhere to and they need to be in a position to adhere to those standards as of the date of registration. They would then go to our website and register for the charity portal and that is the portal by which they would apply for registration. They're able to find details of this on our website, which is acnc.gov.au slash community sheds, and that will help them go through that process. There's a registration form in there, and they can select on that registration form that they are applying for the DGR status of community sheds, and they would submit their application to us along with their governing documents we would review that. Generally, we will determine registration within 15 days of receiving all of the relevant information. For most sheds, they will be able to give us that information when they first apply. If there are any issues with the governing documents or with adherence to governance standards, we may come back and ask a few more questions before we do register them. And from the provision of that information, the 15 days uh, will run from there. At that point in time, if a shed is registered as a charity, then we pass through to the ATO that that shed has been registered and that they wish to apply for DGR endorsement. It's then for the tax office to apply that DGR endorsement to them. Jennifer, I'll get you to pick up the ball in just a moment, but David, did you want to add something? The whole process, you know, um, we've tried to make and we've worked, you know, closely with, you know, Jennifer's team and Anna's team and, um, you know, we can rest assured to the guys out there in the sheds, you know, the the staff of the ATO and the ACNC are now very familiar with what a men's shed is and some of the difficulties they, they might face along the along the way. So, you know, I think that both organisations are very well informed you know, about the, you know, objects and activities of sheds and uh, uh, will, their staff are well informed on, you know, when they're assessing people's applications on, you know, just the, the some of the complexities that may be involved. Jennifer, you get a notification from Anna's organisation that, Aaron's awesome Bonzer shed is now officially endorsed. What happens next? Oh, look, um, before um, we go through to what happens next, I think, you know, I, I just want to pick up on a point that David and Anna's alluded to, but David also has just mentioned, like we have been working together to really streamline the process. And in essence, we know that there are a small number of sheds that may already be registered as a chari charity. And so then the bulk of them aren't registered as charities. And then there's a small portion that have the, um, you know, that public benevolent um, institutional HPC um, status and they may want to change to this new um, category. So we've actually developed three pathways. And so each pathway um, provides a really streamlined application process. So that 
first pathway is where an ACNC registered community shed um, only requires DGR endorsement. So they come directly to the ATO, they download the, download the application, complete that, supply it back to the ATO um, with um, all of the governing documents. And then depending on what further information may be required, they'll get DGR endorsement. That second pathway, which is the one that um, Anna was referring to, the, these are the community sheds that need to register um, with um, the ACNC as a charity first. Once their application is, um, you know, registration rather is completed by the ACNC, that gets sent to us automatically. So the, the sheds don't need to do anything. That gets sent to us. We will confirm with the shed that we've received the DGR application, and then we will work with, we will review the information. Obviously, if we need um, further information, we will make contact with them. But generally, we will process that within 14 days, and then they will receive a letter confirming that they have DGR status. Once that DGR status is confirmed, the ABR, the Australian Business Register, is actually updated to reflect that that shed now has DGR status. Now, this is really, really important because if your donor wants to check whether your shed has DGR endorsement and therefore any donation that they make to you is tax deductible to them, they can actually go onto the ABR and do a quick you know, check using the ABN lookup to see whether um, you've actually got um, DGR endorsement. And that third pathway that um, you know I referred to is for those sheds who already um, are registered charities with the ACNC as PBIs or HPCs, and they want to um, you know change to that new DGR category. We've mapped out a process that allows them to download the ATO application form. They'll then need to send us a letter, um, uh, either um, email or mail, and just include a request that they want to revoke their current DGR endorsement and um, put in the request for the new DGR endorsement. And, and then the process is the same um, as the one that I had just mentioned. So we have streamlined the processes and we'll be going through these in a lot more detail on the 21st when we do um, a live webinar with uh, charities, with uh, the community sheds. David? We'll be promoting that out and already uh, to the sheds of the webinar so they can, you know, as many of them as possible, engage and correct me if I'm wrong, Jennifer, but I think that webinar will be recorded and available at a later date for those who miss out on it. Oh, yes, absolutely. So it'll be, um, you know, it'll be live. We also we already have quite a number of sheds that have um, registered. The ACNC will be following up our webinar. So our webinar will be occurring on the 21st of September and the ACNC will then run an additional webinar on the 14th of October, predominantly focusing on what it means to register, how they register as a charity, but we'll also touch on the ATO requirements when uh, they need to, um, you know, seek the DGR endorsement. 
and sheds will be able to have contact with with AMSA as well as the ATO and ACNC along the way. We might go around the table then, given that you've just announced one set of resources that will be coming out. Obviously, AMSA will be corresponding as they do on a number of matters about this. You can go back and listen to this chat as many times as you need to, to help make sense of it. But if I can go around the table and ask each of you to tell us one thing as a shedder who is listening to this that we should keep front of mind if we have ambitions of getting DGR endorsement. Anna, we'll start with you. If sheds are thinking about becoming a charity and applying for DGR endorsement, it's really important that they understand the obligations that they are going to have on an annual basis in relation to being a charity. Uh, and that is importantly that they need to maintain their operation as for a charitable purpose. They must notify the ACNC of any changes to their responsible persons. So they're the people that run the charity, um, their charity name and also their address for service. It's important that they comply with the governance standards that I mentioned before. Uh, and part of that does involve keeping really good records of how they're run. And then importantly, every year they need to submit to the ACNC an annual information statement. And that is the information about how the charity has been operated throughout the year, what the financial resources are uh, and et cetera. If for any reason they are operating overseas in any respect, and that includes providing money overseas, they have to comply with our external conduct standards as well. So I think it's really important for any sheds considering DGR endorsement that they have a think about the obligations uh, as well that they're going to need to meet once they are registered as a charity. Uh, I should also mention to pick up a point Jennifer made earlier about um, public benevolent institutions and uh, health promotion charities that are already registered. If they do change to their community sheds DGR status, then they will need to seek a revocation of their current subtype uh, of HPC or PBI. To you? Yes, to the ACNC. Uh, and they can do that by going onto the charity portal, uh, which all registered charities uh, currently do use. Brilliant. Jennifer, I realise that we haven't covered off on every single possible aspect of this, but as we lead this conversation, what would you like people to keep front of mind and indeed report to others at the shed on Wednesday when they rock in there? Well, here's something I never thought I was going to say. The ATO is here to help you. <laughs> so um, we, really, we really are here to help you. We've got an ATO premium hotline. It's 1300-130-248. So if you're struggling, please don't hesitate um, to give us a call and, um, you know, we can help you through um, any of the inquiries that you've got. But there are two quick codes that I might actually just um, share. The first one is quick code 6363. And the second one is quick code 46216 and it's QC. So the quick code is QC and then the number that I just gave you. And they will take you directly to our webpage, which gives you further information on community sheds and how to apply for DGR endorsements. And we've actually worked through that information to make sure that it's, you know, very easy. But 
from from a tax office perspective, there are, are, are three takeaways. I think you know if you, if you as a shed are considering DGR endorsement, you need to review your governing documents and clauses. So you know make sure that you've got all your governing documents ready because you're not going to be able to submit an application unless you've got that. Make sure that your purposes and activities are clearly outlined. Um, provide information on how and where you undertake your activities because that is something that we look at and your shed must have an acceptable DGR winding up and revocation clause. And we've got some examples that um, we can share with you. Remember as well, it's not just in your name. So your shed doesn't have to have the word shed in its name. So we don't want a flurry of organisations going to change their names. The ATO and the ACNC will carefully consider the object clause in your governing documents and the activities that you undertake to determine if you meet the DGR category and charity requirements. And the final takeaway, confirm the DGR endorsement pathway. So remember those three pathways that I outlined before, confirm which, which one are you and then follow the steps because we've made it as easy as possible for you to get that DGR endorsement. That's a brilliant summary. David? I'm glad Anna did mention the reporting requirements. We emphasise the sheds. This isn't just a do and forget. There are annual obligations that you have to do in your reporting to the ACNC. You know, we encourage all sheds to to look at that and you know, see, make sure they they're comfortable in meeting those requirements. Like with the ATO and the ACNC, we're here to help and we'll guide sheds along along the way. But also want to add, just in, in closing, there, um, Jennifer, you said you're here to help, and I have to you know, uh, convey that I've enjoyed working with both the ATO and the ACNC in this whole process, even through those long days of the co-design processes during COVID. It was, uh, you know, an absolute pleasure. And, you know, I can comfortably say to all the guys out there in the shed worlds, wipe all your stereotypical uh, perceptions of people in the ATO. They are a great bunch of people and are very enthusiastic about this. So thank you to you both for helping us you know, over the last six months and we eventually got through it under some tight time constraints at, at times, but here we are today and it's all done and dusted. So thank you very much. Yes, indeed. I don't think you have done anything to advance the stereotype of what we imagine the people who run the ATO and uh, and other government organisations are like, but you have certainly advanced the cause of our understanding and uh, the transparency of this entire process. Thank you for facilitating this really important development for the sheds. There was a lot of work that happened in the political and legislative leg of this journey, and now this is the practical leg of the journey. And all I can say is to anyone who's in the shed, if anyone walks past and says they're bored, then uh, you've got a little job for them to be going on with for the next little while. Uh, thank you very much to Australian Taxation Office Assistant Commissioner Jennifer Moltisanti. Thank you to Australian Charities and Not-for-Profits Commission Assistant Commissioner Anna Longley. And thank you, as always, to Australian Men's Shed Association Executive Officer David Helmers. 
You've heard a lot of information there. I encourage you to listen to this a couple of times through. I very strongly encourage you to get involved with the webinar, but perhaps the best thing you can do is stay across the correspondence that is coming out of AMSA. I know sometimes you see it in your inbox and put it in the too hard category. It's really worth staying across this because the three people you've heard here and an army of others are really determined to hold your hand and get the best result for you via the path of least resistance in this whole process. So hopefully that has given you some hope that you can indeed tackle this thing and you can get a result for your shed and your community. This is the Shed Wireless. One person who is particularly pleased to have seen the DGR status for men's sheds come to fruition is Ted O'Brien. Ted is many things, including the federal member for Fairfax, a former sparring partner of Clive Palmer, metaphorically, not literally, chairman of the Australian Republican Movement, chairman of the advisory board for Ronald McDonald House Charities South East Queensland, advisory board member for Queensland Catholic Education, and more recently, founder and chairman of a local not-for-profit generation innovation program, which helps young people start their own business. But he joins us here in his new role as chair of the Parliamentary Friends of Men's Shed Group and a key driver of our achievement of DGR status. Ted O'Brien, welcome to the Shed Wireless. Thank you very much. Wonderful to be with you. Thank you for taking on the chairman's role. How did that come about? Oh, I'm delighted, actually. It's funny how these things work out. So I think because I took on the campaign to get uh, the DGR status for men's sheds, just over time got to know a lot of the sheds and sort of fell in love with the whole movement, really. And then um, I got a, a tap on the shoulder to see if I'd be keen to be chair of the parliamentary friends of men's shed and and it was a, a very easy decision to say absolutely happy to support in any way i can actually i actually noticed because i went looking today that there are parliamentary friends of all sorts of things from the abc to the lgbtqi community and everything in between are there still issues that parties can come together on and actually work together to do good yeah, look, there are. You wouldn't think so if you just tune into the nightly news. It seems like a, an endless political spat at times when you are looking at politics from the outside. But I have to say there is far more cooperation between political parties than most people would ever imagine. And uh, Men's Shed is one of those causes, one of those items where you do have people coming together. But you're right, there's parliamentary friends groups for God knows how many things. People have thought about starting up a parliamentary friends group for no more parliamentary friends groups. <laughs> um, but there are some, you know, I don't want to criticise any parliamentary friends groups, but candidly, some are more important than others. And um, Men's Shed is absolutely up there as one of the important ones. What difference does it make having both sides with their shoulder to the wheel? To state the obvious, it just takes the politics out of things. You don't have to wrestle before you run. Yeah, yeah, ex exactly. <laughs> and you know that um, it's an easier arm wrestle with government, um, and I say this as a member of the government, but it's an easier arm wrestle when you're wanting outcomes when you've got the entire parliament behind you 
and um, and demonstrating bipartisanship on key issues, I think also sends a very positive message to the Australian public that when it comes to really important things, we actually come together as a parliament. And look, we saw that in COVID, right? And there, there will be issues where there'll be disagreement. And as time goes on, we start talking about how to have a, an economic recovery. Those differences will be aired more. But as soon as COVID hit, we came together. The Prime Minister provided the leadership and everybody just locked in. So look, when it comes to things like men's sheds, I have never had any pushback from any member of the Labor Party as I went for DGR status as a Liberal MP. So that's good. That's a healthy thing. And and taking on the role of chair of the Parliamentary Friends of Men's Shed means I'm not the chair but a co-chair with Chris Hayes of the Labor Party. So that's good. Why do you see value in men's sheds? Australia has a problem with a gradual erosion of what's referred to as like civil society. Spirituality is is waning, not enriching. While there's a lot of volunteers in Australia, demand exceeds supply. We've had enormous number of family breakdowns. That's only getting worse over the years. The introduction of social media and so forth is seeing a lot of community groups disappear. Uh, The average age of community group leaders is only increasing. So this is causing all these strains, right? In walks men's sheds. While a lot of other community movements are struggling to survive, men's shed is swimming right against the tide. It is growing at a time when other groups are struggling to survive. And for me, that really got me interested. Um, And the great thing about Men's Shed is it deals with um, serious issues. So it deals with social inclusion and all that stuff. It it, it openly talks about the importance of mental health and just the health of men. But it it doesn't carry on about it. You don't drive past a Men's Shed and there's not like a shingle out the front that says, have you got a mental health problem? Come on in. It's sort of, it's just a bunch of blokes who who just knock about together. I mean, so I'm, I'm one of nine kids, right? I'm the youngest of, of a big tribe. There's seven boys in my family. Um, and I went to boarding school and all that stuff and loved my rugby. And... Speaking of having to wrestle before you run. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, right? It's sort of when you do it when you've got a whole tribe of older brothers. But f- for me, I just relate it to men's sheds. You walk into any men's shed and it is walking into, uh, for me, my, my old kitchen at home with a whole bunch of brothers who will take the mickey out of you. But at the end of the day, push comes to shove, they're there. Just a big bunch of mates who will joke around, have a bit of fun, might bang a few nails into wood, but in actual fact, they've got your back. And when times are tough, they're there. And so I think the the quintessential characteristics of great Australian mateship lives and breathes in men's sheds. And that is why they're swimming against the tide as other community groups wither, they are only gaining strength and there's more and more of them. And for me, that's what I love about them. I think they are shining light 
amidst an eroding civil society and it's a new way of doing business. It's a new way of community being reborn and rebuilding. I know you're only a pup yourself and you were (laughs) sort of trained in a trade in that you became a trainee baker in your early days, but if you had to lob in a shed, what would your special skill be, do you think? I reckon I would be told to go and make a cup of tea. <laughs> Honestly, cause if, I, if, I, if, I, if I think of the average shed you walk around, um, I would just be a trainee in everything, to be honest. I reckon they'll, they'll tell me to go make a cup of tea and I may not stuff that up. <laughs> what about if you're going to bring some baked goods? Could you bring some baked goods? Oh, I think I'd be very popular um, if I brought some baked goods. Mind you, as much as I did train as a baker, I, I don't think I'd be too flash. I'll go to the local bakery. That'll do me. <laughs> yeah, see, that's that's ingenuity at work right there. <laughs> it is. It is. It is. So why did you feel it was important to go in hard after the DGR? I don't think you can affect change in our tax system without political will. And I learned that the hard way. So there are a few sheds in, uh, in my patch, in my electorate, who – tried to get DGR, but they just kept getting knocked back. Mm. And um, since ACNC came in, since there was reform of the charity not-for-profit sector, it just became harder for men's sheds. And, you, you know, you look at the paperwork and you'd say, well, there's no reason why men's sheds shouldn't get DGR. But it, it was like hitting your head against that brick wall, right? Mm. Men's sheds just kept getting a no. And no matter how many conversations I had with people, It just came down to, all right, this one we actually have to fight for. This is not going to be done by persuasion. We need political will to change the tax system. And, I mean, you know, getting DGR status for men's shed is not a tax reform like an introduction of the GST, right? You know, it's the magnitude is nothing like that. (laughs) But I tell you what, you're still up against it. Um, And that's where we just said, well, all right, this is not going to be done through, you know, smiles and persuasion. This is just downright political will. Uh, We need the government to say, yes, this has to be done. And thankfully we got there. And so it's an interesting thing, right, because my background's not politics. Hmm. We can't have the political system force changes in business models that work. So, you know, with men's sheds, It'd be far easier previously for men's sheds to get DGR if they did shake pom-poms about we help people with mental health. Mm-hmm. And if every every website of the men's shed, you know, screamed out about the health issues the men's sheds deal with. But that would be a fundamental change to the business model. You know, a lot of men don't rock up just because they might want to talk about mental health. You don't want a model that works to be changed because of the tax system. The tax system should change to to support worthwhile business models, and and that was only ever going to come through political will, and that's why I took it on and said, well, right, this is a fight worth having. How much difference do you think DGR status will make at the shed door, if I can put it that way? I'm hoping it will make a big difference, particularly to younger sheds that need to raise capital 
to build sheds. It's fascinating you say that because in the course of having conversations for the Shed Wireless, you speak to some sheds that have financial support via a range of mechanisms and then you talk to some that are battling the fundraising on a daily basis and it actually affects the very core and culture of how the shed operates where on that spectrum you sit. Yeah, and and I've seen that myself across different sheds. Where DGR comes in, I think it will be most helpful when sheds decide to raise money as part of a campaign. So where they basically say, we are going to have a, a start date, an end date, and a fundraising target, and it is to build a shed, to get the car park um, laid, uh, it is to you know buy XYZ. And that's where DGR comes in because the sales pitch can be far more compelling when you can be saying to people that uh, any donation over $2, well, you can, you can claim it as a tax deduction. Then it's easier for people to open up their wallets. But more than that, um, and I'm probably telling you things you and other people in the, the shed movement know, but there are all of these philanthropic organisations that their first screening of potential recipients is do they have DGR status or not. Mm. So, you know, it doesn't matter how good you are, if you don't have DGR status, there are some philanthropic organisations mm. that won't even look mm. at you because there's just there's too many people out there asking for money. And so a lot of those organisations that have the money say, well, if they don't have DGR status, then they're not recognised by government as being truly delivering the services that are most needed. So we just had to clear that barrier, get rid of that barrier so that men's sheds can do what they do well and they have equal access to raising capital as anyone else out there. I know when I talk to a lot of pollies, they sometimes get frustrated by how hard they work on things and it's not always a popular opinion but you can disagree with how politicians go about their business and even their personalities but very few of the people who I know in politics are having a bludge most of them are working their backsides off but a lot of them are frustrated that you can't always hold the outcome in your hand and show everyone what you've got for your efforts this really is one thing this DGR where you could quite literally drive around Australia and see where the difference was made yeah and it's one of those things um from just a local perspective, and I've only been an MP, this is my second term, for about four years now, mm. but it, it's wonderful to, to go through from start to finish where just the experience of a bunch of blokes sitting around a shed complaining about I can't get DGR, just to see how all of that can mm. evolve and all the discussions you have in Canberra. And this is a grassroots change to our tax system that doesn't happen very often and it was due to men in men's sheds that it happened because basically most men's sheds they're they're smart as the leadership teams of men's sheds are as bright as any asx listed leadership team they really are and that that helps right so it really helps me as somebody who wants to support the cause you know you're not sort of helping them 
with the really simple stuff, the, the men's shed themselves are coming up with all the arguments, all the evidence, and they're absolutely top-notch. So that makes it a lot easier for me to do my bit. Yeah, you get an ex-copper, an ex-psychologist and an ex-chippy together with 150 years' experience between them <laughs> and then they put their mind to something they can be quite the handful, right? Yeah, yeah, that's a good way to put it. Dead right, dead right. Uh, just a quick way because you were talking about your local patch there on the Sunshine Coast. You have a campaign up there to make it the healthiest place on earth. A, how is that going? And B, does something like your men's sheds play a role in that? Yeah, it does play a role. I think it's going well. So this is this is something that I actually spoke about in my maiden speech in the parliament. I um, read it in full this morning. Oh, did you? Speech. Did yeah. you? And you're still awake. Or did you have a sleep between now and then? No, no, I can tell you there are many parliamentary speeches that will put you to sleep. The maiden ones are generally pretty spicy and entertaining. <laughs> okay. so. I'll, I'll send you a link to some of my more boring ones. And see how <laughs> yeah, yeah, please go. do. Please <laughs> I do believe that my part of the world, which is, as you know, the Sunshine Coast in Queensland, does has, have the opportunity to be the healthiest place on earth. But to take a step back, I think Australia has the opportunity to be recognised as the healthiest place on earth. And not just healthy in terms of the health that the doctors and nurses keep intact. That's part of the story. But a place that's got a healthy climate, a place that has a healthy set of relationships between community members, a place that is healthy as an economy, you know, Australia already differentiates like this. I mean, Australian food and agriculture is already recognises the healthiest you can get around the world. I think there's far more we can do with that positioning, if you like. And men's sheds do fit into that because I know, you know, Ireland and other places have similar movements, but really men's sheds in Australia are, are second to none and it goes to the healthiness of a community. If a community is really healthy, it will have vibrant men's sheds because it is a proxy for a really rich, vibrant civil society. And that is what makes a community healthy. That is what will make Australia more resilient as we move forward. And we know that through COVID, any external shocks test your resilience. It's going to be our healthiness across every measure of health that'll make the difference. Australia, I believe, can be the healthiest nation on earth. And maybe I'm a little biased, but I think uh, within Australia, Queensland definitely has that. And within Queensland, I I believe my little part of the world, the Sunshine Coast, um, um, has it in abundance. Yes, well, people have never been hungrier to get across that border, I can assure you, Ted. That day will come. That day will come. Thank you so much for everything that you have done so far with the DGR status achievement, but also for taking on this co-chair role. Absolute pleasure, mate. Thanks for your time. Nailed it. Nailed it. Nailed it. We rip with chip. G'day, Shadows. Rip with chip here. How are you all going today? I 
just got back from me walk up the shops to grab the bread and milk for the missus. There was this bunch of bloody teenagers up there carrying on and yahooing like bloody gooses they were. They were riding their bikes in front of cars and getting in people's way, generally making a nuisance of themselves. I had to hold me tongue, I tells ya. Funny thing is, I know half of them and their parents, and if you got them alone, they're half decent kids. Could just do with a term or two of the Rip W. Woodchip School for Delinquents. That'd sort them out. Gotta admit though, I was a bit of the same myself when I was that age. Ten foot tall and bulletproof, and little to no respect for anyone or anything. I guess it's just a stage we all go through. Trying it on until someone or something snaps us out of it. Some kids are way worse than others though. I reckon it's just a matter of upbringing. Monkey see and monkey do. Problem is, a lot of parents are more hell-bent on being their kid's best friend rather than being a parent these days. And they don't realise they're not doing them any bloody favours. I tell you what though, my old man didn't muck around. I'd be quick to get a boot up the clacker if I was to so much as not take me hat off at the table. I hated it at the time, but it sure taught me manners and respect and served me well over the years. You get what you give. If there was one thing me old man and me old lady taught me, it was respect though. Not just for others, but for myself too. And they're like peas and carrots. If you want one, you gotta have the other. They taught me to respect me elders, even if you did think they were a bit how's you going, some of them, and to open the door for a lady, or for anyone for that matter. And the little things like, judge a man by the strength of his character, not by the shine of his shoes. And the importance of a good, strong handshake, and looking a person dead in the eye. That'd say, if you can't look someone in the eye, you've either got something to hide, or you can't hold your head high enough. Which basically means you don't have any self-respect. And if you don't have respect for yourself, you have no right to expect it from others. And when did the kids start calling us adults by our first names anyway? Up until the day they died, me mate still called me mum and dad Mr and Mrs Woodchip. We didn't dare call adults by their first name. And just about everyone in town back then was either me auntie or me uncle and retained the right to assert the same authority as me mum and dad did too. I had that many aunties and uncles, I didn't know who was who and didn't dare set a foot wrong in town. Once Uncle Fred, the milkman, even gave me a clip behind the ear for pinching his tips. Something about old Uncle Fred, though. I always seemed to like him. Good-looking fella, too, he was. And if you walked into somebody else's home, you'd live by their rules. Simple. That's how you earn respect? By giving it. And nothing better than having the respect of someone you hold in high regard, too. And on the contrary, nothing worse than losing it. I'd rather have copped the biggest flogging of my life rather than the look the old man gave me the day he had to pick me up from the cop station for blowing up all those letterboxes that time. Not so much as a word, just that bitter look of disappointment. Just quietly, I think he should have showed a bit more gratitude as he owned the local hardware and the sales of letterboxes went up 50% that month. I learned the hard way, but the best way, the importance of the good manners and respect. I guess I'm a bit old school that way and always tried to instill the same on my brood. Like innocent until proven guilty, I'll give you my full respect from the onset. It's up to you to lose it. Mind you, there are a lot of people out there that just don't deserve it, and in turn, probably don't give a hoot if they've got mine or not, poor bastards. But every generation complains about the one before. So how bad is it going to get before we all get any better? Hopefully, like my old safari suit, the fashion of good etiquette and respect will come full circle again, and in future generations, we'll be throwing our coats over puddles tipping our hats and looking at each other in the eye rather than staring at our phones. Anyway, fellas, I've got to go make me princess her cup of tea and toast. 
That's the only way to get her respect in the morning. All right, fellas, catch you next week. See you, fellas. Got a question? Ask the doc, Professor Rob McLaughlin from AMSA Partners Healthy Mail. Ah, yes, you've no doubt heard all the hilarious jokes about it. It takes all night to do what you used to do all night. Uh, Where do you go for holiday if you have erectile dysfunction? Can I suggest Lake Flaccid? Why don't we better understand erectile dysfunction? I mean, it's not hard. Even though they may be vaguely amusing, and if you're a 10-year-old boy like me, more than vaguely amusing, uh, jokes like that can actually make it all the more unnerving if you find out, for whatever reason, that your would would not. Here on The Shed Wireless, we pride ourselves on tackling the uncomfortable issues and hopefully we can retain a sense of humour along the way. Professor Rob McLaughlin AM is with us. He is a director at Healthy Mail, among many other things, including our Shed Wireless doctor in the house. Hello, Rob. Darren. I know it's not the done thing for doctors with expertise in this regard to make jokes about it, so I'll keep those to myself. And as he often does, Rob likes to bring a friend with special insights. And uh, this episode, he has brought Dr. Gideon Bletcher, a urologist and andrologist who specialises in male sexual health and reproductive issues, including erectile dysfunction. Hello, Doctor. Good morning, Aaron. Welcome to The Shed Wireless. I will attempt to be serious for just a moment. Are jokes like that harmful or are they an entree to a conversation or can they be both? Well, you know, I, I think uh, we often make jokes about things we're actually worried about. It's a way of relieving anxiety and erectile dysfunction for those guys that have it is, is it's not a joking matter and uh, it's of concern to a lot of men. It really is a very common problem. How common is it? Well, look, it's uh, very common. Perhaps one man in eight over the age of 50 or one in three over the age of 60. I mean, this is large amounts of the population and they often worry about this to themselves, think about it, wonder what they can do. And it's a bit awkward sometimes to bring it up and they look for anonymity perhaps in some uh, finding out about it. They go to Google and go down some rabbit hole on Google. Whereas, in fact, uh, there's a lot of good news that can be gotten and help that can be gotten from their local doctor and from specialists such as Gideon. So, you know, this is really a good news story for a common problem. Gideon, the phrase erectile dysfunction gets sprayed about a fair bit. What does it mean? Because I've seen it interpreted as a few different things. Really, at the end of the day, it's it's an inability to be able to attain or maintain an erection that's of enough strength sufficient for sexual purposes. And uh, that can obviously be uh, pretty broad for, for each individual man. Without diving too deep, too quick, I'm sure that there are plenty of 25-year-olds that have found themselves unable to dance on command, as it were. What's the difference between that and some sort of chronic erectile dysfunction problem that one needs to start worrying about? Well, I think you've highlighted on the fact that erectile dysfunction can certainly affect younger guys. It's not just a problem of older men. Usually, uh, it's going to be more common for younger guys to have a cause that's related to how they're feeling about their erections and their confidence in their sex lives. So, there's a lot of you know psychology and anxiety at play uh, often in the younger guy. Uh, but nonetheless, they're still suffering from erection problems. If they can't get it up uh, in a persistent way and it's troubling them and their partner, that's erectile dysfunction. Uh, in the older guy, uh, it's just probably going to be 
some other causes, but an anxiety or um, psychological component is still amazingly common. Yeah, so Rob, let's look into that then. How much is it the pure anatomy that is the problem, as anatomy is a problem in a whole range of areas as we age? How much is uh, the piece of anatomy between the ears in play when it comes to erectile dysfunction? Well, you see, everything has to work together. You have to have the nerves and blood vessel function in the penis to allow it to occur, but your head also has to be in the right place, to, you know, in the right mood and, and situation. So the two things work hand in hand. But for many older men, particularly those with chronic disease, there's a lot of uh, organic or structural problem with the anatomy. And really what you're dealing with in, within the penis itself is a complicated system of blood vessels and nerves that allow basically relaxation of blood lakes within the penis to allow it to sort of swell, and then a special mechanism which traps the blood there. It stops the blood coming out through the veins. So basically it's an entrapment situation which relies upon relaxation of blood vessels and normal blood vessel function. Uh, and you know, the, the issue here is that an erection really is, in a way, nature's blood vessel function tests. It's telling you that the blood vessels in the body, the lining of those blood vessels is healthy and functional and able to do what it's supposed to do. And so some people regard it as a sort of canary in the coal mine for your vascular health so that uh, you know, if a man develops erectile dysfunction, it is a, a, a red flag that there might be issues in other blood vessels in the body, heart, brain, whatever, and it's a, it's a flag that they need to not just think about the erection problem and get that sorted, and perhaps some treatments which we'll get onto shortly, but also look at their general health, look at their vascular risk factors. Uh, and so it could have a lot more implication than just the, the sex life that they've come along with. Should something go wrong, if you can't perform on command, that's often when the anxiety and the brain aspect comes in and you can get into a really negative feedback loop. You're, you're worried about it because it can't happen and then it can't happen because you're worried about it and then you're worried about it because it can't happen, right? <laughs> and it's one of those things where the harder you try to think it through to make it happen, the less likely it's going to be. It really is something where you need to be not worried, not concerned, not concentrating on it. You're quite right. Some guys who notice their erections are beginning to get weaker or they become concerned that it might be be losing that ability, we'll focus on that during the sex act or in the, in the warm-up to it, and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And so you need to break that, that cycle of negativity. Gideon, if somebody finds themselves in that situation, and as we've just heard, it's pretty much an interaction between the psychological and the physical, but if somebody is starting to find themselves in that sort of situation, what options are available? I guess the first thing that pops to mind is the legendary blue pill, Viagra and its various other incarnations. Where, first of all, does it fit in the whole system? I think the first thing to do is to, to man up about it and, um, and get some help. I mean, you know, we, we don't need to be embarrassed about uh, these sorts of problems anymore. Uh, and uh, I think that's, the, that's really the most important first step. Guys should get out and go and speak to somebody, whether it's their partner, whether it's their GP, whether it's another health professional. I think that's the first major step. And as Rob was alluding to, yes, there are a variety of other medical aspects which do need to be touched on because uh, much like prostate cancer, when men might have some urine symptoms and get really concerned that they might have a cancer, uh, 
The same kind of thing applies to erection problems. You may have an erection issue, but there might be something else more important or equally important, let's say, going on elsewhere within mm. the body. And then it's a matter of having that discussion usually with your GP or with a specialist who works with men in the erectile dysfunction uh, world to talk about what treatment options there may be. And certainly something like a, a, a tablet may be a very reasonable first step. Pardon my ignorance on this. Is Viagra, I'll call it that even though it's a brand name, it's what everybody knows it as, is Viagra a prescription or can you just go and get it over the counter? Yeah, it's a prescription in Australia, but that's fairly easy to, to get. And it came off patent some years ago as well. So it's it's not uh, particularly expensive either, as now some of the other medications in its class are also coming off patent. So that used to be one of the big barriers, just the, the expense of the things. But now they're, they're much more affordable. If we follow the recommendation that you say, and bear in mind, listeners, think of what Rob just said. If you're a 60-year-old bloke and there's two other 60-year-old blokes in the waiting room as well, there's a fair chance one of you is experiencing it. So you're not going to shock your doctor by lobbing in and mentioning it, are you, Rob? No, you're not. In fact, look, the local doctors are well aware of the situation now, and I think it, uh, it's, it's pretty standard protocol now. A, a guy comes in with erectile dysfunction, they're going to have that issue addressed along with what you've been talking about with Viagra and the like, but they're going to have their blood pressure checked, they're going to have their cholesterol checked, they're going to have their diabetes checked, they're going to have their smoking history checked, they're going to have a, a mental health check to be, you know, relationship issues are going to crop up. All those things have to be addressed to give the proper balanced care that the man might need. Remember, you know, if you do come along with erectile dysfunction and lo and behold, you've got diabetes, well, there's a whole lot of things that's going to have to flow from that. And I think it's also important to say to men, if these things do crop up at that, at that uh, consultation, now if you do something about it now, it's not going to get any worse. You're going to be able to put the brakes on this deterioration. You're going to improve your blood vessel health. So not, not only will you uh, have treatment now to hopefully restore your sexual happiness, but you'll also embark upon uh, treatments that will prevent it getting any worse. So there has to be some optimism in that. And Aaron, before I forget, there's one thing I really must say because it really doves into this well. Don't go to the web on this issue because the web is full of real rabbit holes, commercially driven people, importation of unproven drugs from overseas. Uh, there have been some really bad health, health outcomes from people trying to self-medicate and self-manage this. This is so easily done through your local doctor. As Gideon says, it's now much cheaper than it ever was before and all the other benefits of a holistic care will come to you. So please don't go down a rabbit hole on the web. That actually speaks to one of the things that I wanted to raise. You use the term sexual happiness. We've also moved to a point on the medical side as well where actually sexual happiness, a high-functioning relationship, whatever that looks like physically, really matters as a quality of life issue. That is now recognised. No one's going to roll their eyes because you want to have a boner. No, no, no. All these things really are so pivotal to our to our emotional state and our review of the world, and you, you've got to get everything uh, happening. Gideon, I come to a specialist, perhaps somebody like yourself. We've been down the Viagra route. That's not necessarily achieving what we'd hoped that it would. What other potential treatments are available? 
Yeah. So look, I, I guess the good thing is there's a variety of treatments, uh, Aaron. It's not just uh, sildenafil. We'll call it sildenafil because a lot of people get this medication and they think, holy moly, what is this? Uh, I thought I was getting Viagra. Is that the generic name for it, is it? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Sildenafil is Viagra. And uh, there's another three uh, medications on the market, one of which is Tadalafil, which has just come off uh, patent. So that's equally going to be just as, as cheap, really. So there's a variety of other medications and some people will respond better to, to one more so than the other. So don't get too down uh, if you're not getting a good response to one. Gideon, just before you go any further, can I ask you what actually happens when you take one of those pills? What What's happening to your body? So as Rob was saying before, in, in terms of how does an erection work, the first step is to obviously get some form of arousal. And then what happens is you get chemical changes happening in the penis such that it opens up blood vessels. So the arteries are the little blood vessels that take blood from the heart towards the rest of the body. And what you need initially is an opening up and increase in the inflow of the blood of the penis. And along then subsequently with a, a reduction of the outflow, so if you imagine a bathtub, you're turning on the taps full pelt, off they go. But then also what you then start to do is you start to block off the drain. And then all of a sudden you're getting a lot more fluid uh, in that bathtub. And that's that's what, how you get an erection. Now Viagra or Sildenafil, any of those other tablets, they simply work by opening up the blood vessels so to increase the uh, the blood flow within the penis. One of the things I find men will, will say that I took the, the Salus or the Viagra or whatever and uh, waited for the erection to happen. And they said, well, what, what were you doing? Oh, it's just sort of, you know, sitting down, you know, waiting for it to happen. I said, it doesn't work like that. I say, these things, things only happen in the right context, in the right mindset. <laughs> you have to be trying to undertake sexual activity. I sometimes joke, look, you know, if you took a, a Cialis and filled in your, you know, your tax, you will not get an erection. <laughs> You know, right? your, your head's not in the right place. What about if you're an accountant? <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. Speak for yourself, Rob. You don't know what I do on a Saturday night. You've got other sorts of problems. <laughs> Another point, the point is that these things work in conjunction with the brain. Uh, that's the point I just wanted to make. And they have to be taken the right way. So you don't tank up on alcohol before you do it. That's not going to make it work any better, make it, make it like worse. I mean, there are ways to take it properly. The timing, it's quite technical to get it right. And make sure you get it right before you say it doesn't work. Can we just elaborate on that? And I don't mind who's better to take this, but I'll be transparent. I haven't experienced it. And so sort of the cliche or the, you know, the street corner talk is that you take it and then you could hang a towel off it and you need to find somebody to share that with. How exactly does it work? I think it's important to, to remember what Rob said is that you've got to get in the mood. There is no point taking these tablets and walking down uh, to the supermarket. That, that's what you hear that, oh my God, don't do that or you'll be in this extremely compromised position. But it, it doesn't really work that way. Well, look, I mean, for guys who've got erectile dysfunction, no. I mean, for a younger guy, if they're, if they're doing something, uh, you know, you hear about these contexts of, of, of stag do's and so on, people trying to use medications in that way. Obviously, there, there's, a, there's a world of problems that can ensue from that. Um, so a guy like that's more likely to get a, sort of a bit more of a spontaneous erection. But for men who've actually got erectile dysfunction, uh, if you take these medications, you need to get in the mood. And there's also really important administration instructions that, you know, Rob and myself and, and a good GP would go through because if you just take it with your dinner, that may affect how the medication works. Timing is important as well. What happens if I don't respond to these medications? What's the next step, Gideon? Well, I guess in, in, in the medical literature, it usually looks quite stepwise. Like you do step one, then step two, then if that fails, step three and then four. But the reality is, is that you kind of need to think about a variety of treatment options all up front. And that starts at what we were talking about before by lifestyle changes, weight loss and so on. When men lose weight, 
that can actually improve their erectile function, believe it or not. And it can also improve their sensitivity to these medications that we've just been discussing. So looking at those aspects is one, is one sort of uh, facet. Uh, but things like uh, a penile ring, uh, a penile ring is simply a, um, a rubber or silicon type constriction band which is placed on the base of the penis and that can hold blood in the penis and that can be used in conjunction with tablets. Uh, a vacuum erectile device, uh, many men may have seen these uh, somewhere on the web or something like that uh, and they're a very simple device which is used uh, to basically um, create a vacuum and blood then uh, heads down into the penis and that can be used as well in conjunction with a, a penile ring. So that's a, that's a mechanical form of assistance and again that's for some couples and not for others. It might be great for a couple who uh, have had a long-standing sexual history and are very trusting and maybe have had uh, some time playing with sex toys in the past but it might not be so great for a single bloke who's out there uh, trying to land himself a, a partner for the first time and meets them in the bedroom with this device. So different strokes for different folks. Uh, there are other alternatives like uh, injections. And although it sounds awful and I get a lot of guys who come and see me in the rooms and I mention that word and they sort of say, Gideon, you're serious, an injection into your penis. And the reality is they're really small needles and they work really, really well. And some guys absolutely love them and have been on them for many, many years. And they're a really good way of getting a, a quite um, strong erection, uh, particularly if you uh, fail or don't uh, agree with the medications or vacuum devices that I've um, just mentioned before. And are they cause and effect? For example, do I get that on a Friday if I want to go out Friday night or are they something that I get and it improves function for three months as it were? Yeah, I, I wish that was the case. Um, right. With the injections, it's uh, when you want it, you use it. Much like the uh, okay. the pill, uh, you have to use it on the day that you want it. Okay. So it's a, it's a one-off. Um, and then finally, I guess, you know, when, when all of those things don't really work, uh, the option of surgery comes into play and uh, penile implants are a really good option for men who aren't responding for all those other treatments. Uh, they, although they're not a natural erection, uh, men have really good reported uh, satisfaction rates from these devices uh, and it takes away that anxiety that we were mentioning earlier on. A lot of guys don't like the fact that when they're using injections or tablets or, or pump or whatever, that there's always this concern, am I going to get it up? Is it going to be enough? Am I going to please my partner? Am I going to have a good time myself? So a lot of those things need to be addressed. So along with using a penile implant or a pump or whatever, even if guys don't necessarily have a, an anxiety component as their main cause for erectile dysfunction, part of the management will often involve a sexologist or a psychosexual counsellor. And these are psychologists who train in sexual interactions and relationships and are really vital and helpful uh, to help guys um, be guided through this process of trying to you know, optimize their sexual health. And that brings me back to that initial point that Rob was saying, don't go on the web. Why don't I advise guys to just get help on the web with sort of fairly faceless uh, interactions with uh, certain medical businesses which just prescribe drugs? Well, I don't think that's healthy because all of a sudden you've excluded that initial let's talk about the smoking, let's talk about exercise, let's talk about all those other aspects of your of your health. That's gone. You don't get the opportunity to have those things addressed and discussed. You don't get the opportunity to discuss your concerns about your self-esteem and your relationship. You don't get the opportunity to maybe have a referral to a, a psychosexual counsellor for those issues, which is really, really helpful in conjunction with the other treatments that we have discussed. 
Fascinating. And Rob, as we've discussed when it comes to some of the prostate problems in previous episodes, there are ways to find sexual fulfilment beyond pure penile penetration as well, aren't there? Assuming everything else fails, then maybe creativity is going to get you home. Yes, yes, yeah. very much like that. In fact, you know, the, the people who had the prostate surgery who really have got a, a lot of damage to the, the nerves that are involved in this process, they're going to struggle. Uh, with with these uh, more basic treatments that Gideon's been talking about, and the alternatives to a happy sex life might not necessarily be through a, through a penile erection. That's just a reality for some guys. But look, for the majority of the the men, these sixty year olds we've been talking about, the, I think the important thing to remember is that you know, ED is very common. Yeah, there's a good news. Uh, story that most of the treatments work for most of the men quite readily. There's no drama around these discussions. The GP is well versed in this. Uh, so it shouldn't be a barrier to asking for help. And you may also pick up conditions which would really otherwise have gone unnoticed and, and untreated, and they could really lead to a longer and better life. So I, I really think most of this ED story is, is a good news story. Can I just chime in there, Rob? You know, I, I think that that point's really uh, quite crucial about, you know, how do you, how do you engage with a GP? You know, I mean, a lot of guys will come and see me and by the time they've seen me, they've had this problem for, you know, two or three years. And I just open the conversation. I say, look, how are you feeling about the erections? It looks like you've been uh, struggling with them for a little bit of time before you've come and uh, seen someone. And this emotional outburst, all of a sudden a tear like, oh my goodness, you know, this stuff has been pent up for years. And it's a big deal. It's a quality of life issue. That's three really crappy years having this on your mind, right? Yeah, absolutely. The GP education programs now, Luigi, are well aware of the such strong association. So the, the good ones will actually bring it up and as part of a general review. They might say, look, Brian, I've been seeing you about you know 10 years now with the diabetes. A lot of guys in your circumstance begin to have troubles in this area. Is that a problem for you? Yes, they say, and away they go. So facilitating the question from the, from the local doctor's point of view is also very important. You can almost guarantee that, you know, a guy that's had diabetes for 10 or 15 or 20 years is going to have some form of erectile dysfunction. And if you, if you don't know about it, you just haven't asked him about it and he or he hasn't asked you about it. So somebody has to, somebody has to break the water there. And, and what would you suggest, Rob, to a patient if, uh, say, if they're not, you know, comfortable or confident that their GP will be able to raise that topic independently? What would you suggest to a patient? Well, I think they'd find, they'd find someone else to talk to, uh, someone else in the practice. Uh, it could be that, that some, some local doctors don't want to talk about this. They feel uncomfortable. There might be, you know, a relationship issue, perhaps personally between the two, like they're, they're good friends and they don't want to ask. It's almost too personal to ask a friend about. They may want to get somebody who's a bit more distant to ask the question from. Look, the answer to any problem is if you don't get the answer the first time, get it from the second or the third person. You keep asking. Gentlemen, I know this is both your life and expertise. It isn't for the rest of us comfortable subject matter, but it's so valuable to be able to have a discussion like this in a trusted forum with two of the absolute best. Thank you both for your time and your considered responses. And as I say, I'm just thinking of that imaginary person that Gideon just said that has been either suppressing this or walking around the shops or sitting watching the footy fretting about this for months or years. Don't do it, guys. Just go and rip the Band-Aid. Go and ask that one hard question. And as the gentleman both just said it's like a piñata. Everything will spill out after that and you'll be 
on your way to a better life and worrying about things that really should matter. Thank you very much, Dr. Gideon Bletcher, urologist, andrologist, a specialist in male sexual health and reproductive issues, including erectile dysfunction. We know how busy you are and we deeply appreciate your time today. You're absolutely welcome, Aaron. And Professor Rob McLaughlin, as always, thank you so much. You anchor these conversations. We've grown to trust you over these episodes very deeply, and thank you for introducing us to quality people with the very best information in this regard. Thanks kindly. It's a great pleasure. For a great range of resources and tools to help you live well, head to the Spanner in the Works website. You can just search it up or go to malehealth.org.au. Everything you hear on The Shed Wireless is created to inform and is not intended to be a substitute for personal advice from your doctor. We've pulled the door closed on this episode of The Shed Wireless, but thanks to everyone who has been in touch via email, theshedwireless at menshed.net, including Gavin. Gavin writes, I just wanted to tell you how much I'm enjoying the podcast. I particularly enjoyed the segment with Fred Smith, the 93-year-old gentleman from Gisborne. It's super encouraging to hear from such a switched-on shedder of his vintage, and I really enjoyed his candor about his disbelief in an afterlife, something that is not often discussed openly. I'm part of a small shed at Mount Perry in Queensland, just a great bunch of about 10 guys that enjoy each other's company twice a week. Our current major project is restoring a Melbourne W-class tram, one of only a few in Queensland. It's a huge undertaking, but we're confident that once completed, it will be a major tourist attraction. Our other claim to fame is that we've been selected to star in every AMSA men's shed calendar so far, with one of those photos involving a recreation of a scene from the Full Monty. We're planning to create our next entry this Tuesday with a COVID-19 themed image. Thanks again to all the wireless team. Please know that your efforts are appreciated and the topics discussed do make us think perhaps a little more positively about our place in this world. Gavin Murray, Treasurer at Mount Perry Men's Shed in Queensland. I hope, Gavin, that you still feel that way after the erectile dysfunction discussion. And Paul Sladden, some really good news in that correspondence for you. Mount Perry is not doing the full Monty this year, so you can. Well, that's a shame, isn't it? Uh, but that's a that's a great story uh, from Gavin. So thanks very much for that feedback, Gavin. And and look, um, just keeping on the same theme, it uh, it really does illustrate that it's it's not the size of the shed that counts. Um, as he said, they uh, that th- they're a small shed, but a very very productive and very very active shed. So uh, I'm very pleased to uh, to hear from Gavin and. Uh, I, I uh, hope he and all the other shedders uh, continue to listen to this <laughs> podcast, but um, I'll leave it at that. Thank you, uh, Aaron. <laughs> you can correspond anytime and about anything. The Shed Wireless at menshed.net. And while you're at it, find the Australian Men's Shed Association on Facebook. It's a great way to connect with other shedders, have a chat, get the goss first and fast. It's really excellent. Thanks to the co-chair of the Parliamentary Friends of Men's Sheds, 
Ted O'Brien and his team, Australian Taxation Office Assistant Commissioner Jennifer Moltisanti, Australian Charities and Not-for-Profits Commission Assistant Commissioner Anna Longley, Australian Men's Shed Association Executive Officer David Helmers, Professor Rob McLaughlin and Dr Gideon Bletcher, Stuart, Rip, Helen Clare and the whole AMSA team working behind the scenes and to you, our ever-growing band of listeners and evangelists who are spreading the word about the Shed Wireless. Thank you all. Happy Men's Shed Week, Paul. Thank you, Aaron. Happy Men's Shed Week, everybody. See you next episode. The Shed Wireless is available via some community radio stations. Contact your local station to find out when you can hear us. If they don't have the show put them in touch and we'll help them out. You can also find The Shed Wireless in Apple iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, Red Circle or just Google us. Wherever you find us, please subscribe so that each new episode gets delivered straight to you. Giving a rating or review helps others to find us more easily. But most of all, please share us with your mates, even if they've never seen a shed, through email, newsletters, word of mouth. Ring a mate and give him the tip. Maybe your wife might even like it. We love your email correspondence to theshedwireless at menshed.net or just head to the AMSA website, www.menshed.org and see what's going on with The Shed online while you're there. It's also a great way to connect with a range of resources, websites and national helplines, including Beyond Blue. If you're experiencing a mental health crisis, call Lifeline Australia on 13 11 14 or Men's Line on 1300 99 Thanks for listening to The Shed Wireless, the wireless you'd listen to if you were in the shed.